From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good evening, friends from the nation's capital. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us. Primary elections are being held today in both Alaska and Wyoming, as you heard there in the headlines. If you live in those states, be sure to vote. If you need a voter guide, go to ivoterguide.com for all the information about the voter, the candidates on your ballot so that you can vote your values. Also, for those of you who have a genuine interest in learning more about running for office or how to help a good candidate run, join us for the Kingdom in Political... Uh, kingdom in in uh, political candidate training at this year's Pray Vote Stand Summit. Excuse me. The training will happen on Friday, September 16th from 12 to 2 p.m. at First Baptist Atlanta. You'll also know that the Pray Vote Stand Summit is happening from September 14th through the 16th. We hope you will join us for all of it. Again, register at prayvotestand.org slash summit. We look forward to seeing you in Atlanta. Today on the program, the Department of Agriculture announced they will not require religious schools to follow new Title IX regulations. Why not? Is this good news for religious freedom or a cynical political move? We'll talk about that today. In addition, Boston's Children's Hospital has created a lot of attention because of their promotion of their new gender clinic. The details are horrifying, but it's important that you know what's happening in Boston and around the country. So we will talk about it today. In addition, the Department of Justice released the warrant that was used to search President Trump's home in Florida, but they will not release the affidavit that was used to get the warrant. Is this important? We'll talk to a 20-year veteran of the Department of Justice to get his take. But first, the headlines for today. Earlier this afternoon, President Biden signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, curiously named, which was leftovers from the failed Build Back Better Act and the Green New Deal. Already, makers of electric cars have hiked prices by an amount that coincidentally mirrors the tax credit provided for the purchase of those vehicles. Anyone who takes such a tax credit should be careful with their math. After all, the bill also provides funding for 87,000 new IRS agents to make sure you carry the one correctly. What else is there to say about this bill? And with me now to talk about it is Dr. Dave Bratt. He's the dean at Liberty University's School of Business and a former member of Congress. Dr. Bratt, welcome back to the show. Hey, great. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Well, it's called the Inflation Reduction Act, but the one thing uh, that everyone seems to agree on is that it will not, in fact, uh, reduce inflation. Why not? Yeah, well, the uh, we're right now experiencing stagflation, uh, which is the worst of both worlds. We just had two quarters of back-to-back economic shrinkage, right? Economic growth is negative. And on top of that, we got, you know, 9.1 inflation down to 8.5, but it's still 40-year highs. And so uh, in the midst of that, the uh, government comes up with another trillion-dollar spending spree uh, that's been validated by the Fed, the Federal Reserve uh, money printing machine. And so that's stimulative. And so uh, at the political level, right, the politicians don't want us to go into a terrible recession uh, coming up before elections. And so they're stimulating. uh, But if you stimulate the economy with a trillion dollars more government spending, uh, that's inflationary. And so now they've locked in. And and in addition to the Fed, uh, the federal government spending another, you know, $800 billion dollars. 
uh, the Federal Reserve System, if you go out and Google uh, M2 growth, right, that just got to Fred, F-R-E-D, that's the Federal Reserve Database, and just type in uh, M2 growth, you'll see they're still pr printing 6% more money. And so they claim to be contractionary on, on monetary policy, uh, but they're not even contractionary there, right? They really haven't done much to reduce the balance sheet. Uh, and they're still printing 6%. You're, you're supposed to match the, the percentage increase in money stock with the uh, percentage of GDP growth. So if the economy is shrinking or zero growth, you shouldn't be printing any money. And so they're stimulatory on both the fiscal side and the monetary side. So it's a, it's a disaster that spells long-term, higher, enduring inflation. And I, I think we're going into a more serious recession as well. Well, Dr. Bratt, at the signing uh, press conference today, President Biden seemed to suggest that uh, inflation was actually over. Let's play clip seven, and then I want you to respond to this. Before I begin today, I want to say a word about the news that came out today relative to the economy. Actually, I just want to say a number. Zero. Today, we received news that our economy had zero percent inflation in the month of July, zero percent. Dr. Bratt, does that mean inflation is over? <laughs> Not by any means. The, uh, if you want to know what the uh, American citizen and consumer thinks about that statement, go out to the Michigan uh, Consumer Sentiment Study. That's the main economic indicator, right, for the non-economists out there. That's the measure most used by economists to measure uh, how Americans are feeling about the economy. And the, their feelings match uh, their indications of the present economic conditions, as well as the future expected uh, conditions that are coming up. All three are the same. They're going straight down. And not only are they down, they're at all-time lows. In fact, the consumer is feeling about exactly the same level as at the bottom of the 07-08 financial crisis. And so uh, if you want to ignore, you know, 300 million people uh, and the pain they're feeling and the the uh, expectations they have for the economy, which is that they're going to continue this feeling and their family budgets are getting pinched uh, in every direction and they're feeling real pain uh, politically, I don't think that's a wise thing to do. Well, Dr. Bratt, what is he trying to say then when he says there's zero percent inflation? Is he just making that up to try to make people feel better? What's the point? Is there any support for what he what he said? Yeah, I mean, they made an error, but the president has, you know, people that write the lines. The, the month to month thing went down. Right. So there's you know, month to month increase is zero. But the uh, to say you don't have any inflation, is just a huge whopper. And so, you know, they do this. The, the mainstream media prints a, a bald faced whopper. And then, uh, you know, the next day they'll retract back on page 8,092 somewhere. Is his point that in inflation from July of 2022 compared to 21 was actually quite high, but it didn't increase any more from June to July? So is that where he says there's zero yeah. percent growth? It's really high yeah. based on last year, but July wasn't yeah. any worse than June. So he's saying there's zero growth. Right. OK, yeah. And, yep. and and so of course and, and he didn't say there's zero growth. He said there's zero inflation, and he meant right. what he said. He knew what he was saying. I know. Yeah. Well, I, I want to. There's another thing that, that that he could have issues with here. Because I want to go ahead and play um, clip 
six, because he may have a uh, George Bush senior moment here. Let's go ahead and play that one. And I'm keeping my campaign commitment. No one, let me emphasize, no one earning less than $400,000 a year will pay a penny more in federal taxes. Dr. Bratt, we know that was a big campaign promise of his. Is he keeping that promise? No, the uh, his buddies on the left, right? The uh, the left is very good at marketing and messaging, and so they they are still ironically uh, casting Republicans as the big business party. Well, the biggest five tech firms uh, in the U.S. right now include you know Facebook and Google and Microsoft and uh, and uh, Amazon, et cetera. Those five uh, tech firms are worth more than all the market cap of Europe combined. And all five of those firms are uh, noticeably guided by leftist thinkers who support Biden. And so if you think Biden is going to tax his buddies, uh, I got another thing coming for you politically. That ain't going to happen. And so uh, they're going to raise the money. And now everybody knows it's going to go way down into the middle class. And uh, so the, the, the Dems are going into an election in November on this. And again, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want to be them right now. The consumer is very upset. Uh, you're going to be facing tax increases. Uh, no one likes that. Uh, if you'll notice also, no, none of this has to do with the supply side of the economy. Everything's always demand side on the left. Uh, it's more fake money uh, printing, uh, more uh, government spending or whatever. No one talks about business, right? The supply side, incentivizing innovation, entrepreneurship, capital, uh, deepening capital investment. Investment in our kids' skill sets in K-12 education, getting them ready for a workforce. Uh, those are all noticeably absent, right? And as a result, productivity, you can go out to Northwestern's got the leading uh, economist in the world on that. Uh, and uh, he's shown uh, productivity growth uh, has been going down for 40 years in a row. Robert Gordon, if you want to Google him, and it's at zero now. Total factor productivity is the only variable that causes long-run economic growth. And it's not an error. I did a PhD in economics. And so the other things cause growth, but they all level out. Total factor productivity, productivity is the only thing that causes long-term economic growth and what is what made us rich. And that's coming to an end. It's at zero. And so that's why you're seeing all these shortcuts and tricks with monetary policy and fiscal policy, because they've run out of bullets on the real economy. Talking to Dr. Dave Bratt from Liberty University. Dr. Bratt, conventional political wisdom says you don't raise taxes during an inflation. We are having all sorts of debates about the definition of words. And I'm sorry, you don't raise taxes during a recession. I know I said that wrong. Um, But the Biden administration points to recent job growth numbers, which were good. And says that means that's proof that we are not in a recession. He doesn't deny that he's raising taxes. He says he's not raising taxes on those who are who make less than four hundred thousand dollars a year. How should we be defining what a recession is? Are we in a recession despite good job numbers? Yeah, uh, we're in a recession. Seventy percent of the economy is consumption, right? Uh, In the U.S. economy, and that's you know basic macro. In your first quarter, you get. C plus I plus G plus net exports. I probably just freaked out the audience and they're having nightmares tonight. Uh, and so uh, consumption, 70%, I just described that. The consumer is at all-time lows uh, in, in terms of their feelings about the economy. Uh, two quarters in a row gets you a recession. And then they mentioned the labor uh, market reports are, are good. And they, they were okay on the, on the data side. 
But when you add that to what I just mentioned about productivity, that's the connector between labor and GDP growth, right? So you got more workers, uh, but we're producing less stuff. Uh, and so people don't care how many people are working. You care how much you're consuming. You know, how much stuff do I get uh, with my paycheck? I want real stuff. And that's GDP, right? The, the famous Milton Friedman quip was, hey, if you want to maximize jobs, uh, just give everyone a teaspoon to dig, uh, dig holes to build a highway, right? Then you'll maximize labor. No one's interested in maximizing the amount of labor. We want to maximize the effectiveness of labor, give the American worker capital to work with. That's what made us the richest country on earth. And our productivity and capital investment is nil right now. And so we're not doing uh, any of the right moves. And there's no sign that we're moving in the right direction. Everyone's politicizing the entire economy. And the Republicans uh, better be careful to do the right thing themselves uh, coming up. I haven't heard a whole lot of... Uh, leadership out of our side neither saying anything positive D about dr bratt in about 25 yeah. seconds what does this mean yeah. for the average american uh it means uh we're in for probably a decade of pain right uh, we've been uh, faking ourselves out the american voter has allowed this to happen it's on us it's on you out there uh, if you want change and you want responsible leadership i'd get some responsible leadership in those economics and uh, political economy Dr. Dave Bratt, it's not good news, but we appreciate you sharing it with us today. Thank you for being yep. with us. God bless you, brother. God bless you. Coming up, a victory for religious freedom, school lunch programs, and Christian schools. Greg Baylor from the Alliance Defending Freedom joins us next to tell us just how excited we should be about this recent news. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org slash Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that verse by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldview's monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview.
Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose. Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. The website is TonyPerkins.com. Now, Washington Watch viewers and listeners will remember we've recently covered the case of Grant Park Christian Academy. It's a Florida school that was denied funding for its meal programs under the new Biden administration guidelines for Title IX. And that was due to the school's refusal to comply with a radical expansion of the definition of sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom filed a lawsuit on behalf of Grant Park Christian, and the Department of Agriculture quickly notified them that their religious exemption was being granted. Now, the United States Department of Agriculture has determined it will not require any religious schools to follow the new Title IX regulations. Here to talk about what this means for religious schools and other religious institutions is ADF's director of the Center for Religious Schools and senior counsel for government affairs, Greg Baylor. Greg, good to see you today. Good to see you, Joseph. Now, I tried to provide a little background on this case. Any details I missed that are important? Well, you know, the USDA is not the agency that normally enforces Title IX, uh, which, of course, is a string on federal money that says recipients, schools can't, just quote, discriminate on the basis of sex. Normally, that's the Department of Education. So I think the USDA may not have anticipated all the consequences of what they were doing. And when we were probing them and asking them how they were going to handle the enforcement of Title IX, they really didn't know. Uh, we tried very hard to file, or we filed the litigation to get them to provide us clear answers about how they would handle religious schools that can't comply because of their religious convictions with the pretty dramatic and radical way that they understand sex as that word appears in Title IX. So there was, I think, a little bit of confusion inside the administration, but at the end of the day, they did the right thing now they just need to communicate with other states besides Florida and tell them not to exclude religious schools from the program because they want to adhere to their religious convictions. And that leads me to my next question is how broad or narrow is this announcement? Does this exempt all religious institutions, just religious schools, just religious primary schools? Who does this apply to? Yeah, it applies to religious schools that get federal financial assistance. Uh, Title IX doesn't just apply to everybody. It only applies to schools that get money from the federal government. And, of, of course, almost all colleges and universities receive uh, funds from the federal government in the form of federal student aid. 
When it comes to K through 12 schools, a much smaller percentage, uh, the vast minority of K through 12 schools get any kind of federal financial assistance. In the case of Grant Park and the other schools that we were, we are concerned with in the USDA context, the money that they're getting from the federal government is national school lunch program funds. These, of course, are funds that are made available to uh, economically disadvantaged students and their families so they can get a free hot lunch at school. So it's only that subset of schools uh, that participate in the national school lunch program. Now, what exemption do they get? They don't get a blanket exemption from Title IX. They only get an exemption from those pieces of it that conflict with their religious convictions, their religious tenants. And USDA was unclear at the beginning about, well, how do you invoke that exemption? Do you need to apply for it? Do you need to comply with these radical demands of Title IX while USDA takes its time and assesses whether you're entitled to the exemption? That was really the controversy that was going on. And we're thankful that the USDA made this announcement saying, look, you don't have to apply for the exemption. If you're a religious school, you're entitled to it. You can continue to hold and believe that men are men, that women are women, that boys are boys and girls are girls without giving up these critical funds to help feed poor children. We're speaking with Greg Baylor from the Alliance Defending Freedom. And Greg, one of the concerns in recent years as religious freedom has continued to be uh, assaulted in the context of higher education is that that uh, Christian universities who hold these positions uh, risk losing student aid if they, for example, uh, do not allow same-sex couples in their married student housing. Does this rule, and again, this is the Department of Agriculture, but how broad is this? Would this help universities that potentially felt that threat? Well, I think they were already in good shape. Um, Interestingly enough, during the, uh, the Trump administration, uh, his Department of Education clarified the precise question that USDA was confused about. And again, that question was, look, there's this exemption that exists. There's this process that the Department of Education created under which a school could not apply for the exemption, but simply get a verification, get an assurance from the department that they possess this exemption. And that had been the practice of the department back, you know, from the beginning, really in the 1980s. And uh, there was some concern under the Obama administration that it was somehow necessary to go through this process. And the Trump administration put a stop to that and adopted a formal regulation that says, look, you don't have to, quote, apply for this exemption. You possess it. You can assert it. The reason this is important is because uh, under the Obama administration, when there was the first time we saw Title IX get interpreted to reach gender identity and sexual orientation, a lot of colleges and universities communicated with the department, asked them for assurance that they possessed the exemption. And folks who oppose religious liberty, LGBT rights activists, were sending FOIA requests to the federal government and compiling shame lists in which they were trying to badmouth these these institutions. So the Department of Education got it right. The USDA never changed that regulation the way that the Department of Education did, and that's why we ended up with this problem. Greg, final question for you. The context here is school lunch programs, and there was this sense that we're going to defund 
school lunch programs for needy kids if you don't share our beliefs about boys being able to become girls. Is this really the administration uh, becoming tolerant of religious freedom, or did they not want to look like bullies uh, for defunding lunch programs? Yeah, I think it's very much the latter. I mean, we know where their priorities lie. I mean, this is an administration that supports the Equality Act, which right. would do away with all of this and impose these obligations on religious schools without any opportunity to get an exemption. So I think they, you know, they, they understood the optics of it and the PR of it, and that's probably a big reason why they backed down. Greg Baylor from the Alliance Defending Freedom, we appreciate you and all that you guys do for us. Thanks for being with us today. You bet. Likewise, Joseph. Take care. Coming up next, Boston Children's Hospital has some questionable medical advice for children dealing with gender dysphoria. We'll tell you about that advice when we come back here on Washington Watch. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Boston Children's Hospital claims to have the first pediatric transgender surgery center in the country, with web videos that boast it offers, quote, a full suite of surgical options for transgender teens, end quote. As reported in the Postmillennial, the venerable hospital promotes their surgeries through a video series on their official YouTube channel. Perhaps most disturbingly, though patients as young as 17 can receive surgery that involves the removal of their genitals, a doctor at the hospital hinted in a published email that he could be flexible when it comes to the age for performing such a surgery. 
Joining me now to discuss her publications reporting on the Boston Children's Hospital and the danger it poses to children is Libby Emmons, editor-in-chief of the Post-Millennial. Libby, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Yeah, we appreciate the work that you have done on this. Uh, what has your research found about what Boston Children's is trying to do? Yeah, so this was reporting done by Christina Buttons, who's one of our reporters, and she did a great job with this report. She uncovered several things. One, that the doctors will perform um, what's called a vaginoplasty on young males who are 17 to receive a phalloplasty. You have to be 18 um, to receive a double mastectomy, 15 is permissible. And she also did uncover that a doctor at the center is willing to perform surgeries on younger teens so long as they have parental consent. How unusual is this in the, in the medical field broadly? Well, you'd think that it's very unusual, but when you start digging around, you find that there are definitely cases of 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-old girls who uh, undergo these voluntary double mastectomies. Um, they are believed to have given consent and uh, their parents approve of the procedure. And it certainly happens in many cases. It's covered by insurance. There's actually a doctor in California, Johanna Holson Kennedy, who has said that if you cut your breasts off when you are young, you can just get new ones later. Um, and that it's not really that big a deal. Some of the clinics that do this are in Texas. It's actually rather shocking. And there are not really that many statistics uh, being collected as to how frequently these kinds of surgeries are performed on teenagers. Now, Jeremy Carswell is the director of Gender Multi-Specialty Services at Boston Children's Hospital and had this to say about the children that they operate on and experience gender dysphoria. Let's play clip two. A child will often know that they are transgender from the moment that they have any ability to express themselves, and parents will often tell us this. We have parents who tell us that their kids, they knew from the minute they were born practically, and actions like refusing to get a haircut or standing to urinate, or trying to stand to urinate, refusing to stand to urinate, trying on siblings' clothing, uh, playing with the, quote, opposite gender toys, things like that. What's your reaction to this idea that uh, what you want to do when you go to the bathroom or your haircut is 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 evidence that uh, we're going to uh, destroy your reproductive system, essentially? I think this is absolutely a horror. It's literally everything that the feminist movement was attempting to fight against when they were saying, hey, we're women. That doesn't necessarily mean we're super feminine. We can exist however we want. If you look at kids uh, who, you know, now, my age, when we were kids, we all wore overalls and played in the mud. And this was not at all unusual behavior for girls. It's really, really shocking to see doctors claim that the way a child behaves and expresses themselves means that they are entirely uncomfortable in their bodies and need to be sterilized and never experience regular sexual function for their entire lives. Yeah, and you make that point well that the one of the primary arguments of the feminist movement is that girls don't have to play with a certain kind of toy. Right. Yet here we have a doctor making the argument that if you play with a certain kind of toy, that's evidence that you are not a girl. And so those are uh, right. clearly contradictory messages. Now, 
this YouTube series that uh, you highlighted and is the kind of the basis of your report here has been removed by Boston Children's That's Hospital. Right. I actually tried to go find those videos and watch them. Why would they remove them if they're proud of the work that they're doing? Because they know that this is absolutely uh, unpalatable to most of the American public. They know that hearing that for most parents to hear that if their daughter likes to play with trucks and their son likes to play with dolls, this means that they should be sterilized is probably ridiculous and horrifying sounding as it is. But if you actually dig in, you can find certainly testimonials on Boston Children's Hospital's website from, you know, these profiles that were made of children who yeah. have partaken of the services, who have gone on puberty blockers, where families have moved entirely across the country in order to engage in this butchery for their children under the belief that they are doing something right for their kids, probably not even aware of the intense harm and life-lasting problems that are being caused by this. If you look into some of these surgeries, the complications are insanely huge with, you know, young women in their 20s now using colostomy bags with half of their arms cut off, uh, the flesh of their arms cut off, in order to make these um, false appendages that are not functioning in any conceivable way. The idea that we need to change our bodies to appear as the opposite sex in order to peel, uh, feel comfortable in our own skin is, I think, entirely anathema to the entire 20th century project. I, I think that's exactly right, and it's also worth noting uh, that those who have these surgeries remain 20% more likely than the general population to attempt suicide. So this is not the loving thing to do for people. But Libby Emmons, thank you for your time today and your research on this. Thank you so much. When we come back, we're going to pick up a conversation from yesterday regarding the FBI's Mar-a-Lago raid. A 20-year Justice Department attorney joins us. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. 
with just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. I told you about the Pray Vote Stand Summit coming up in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, September 14th through the 16th. If you are a high school or a university student, we invite you to join us for a special free worldview session, a part of that event happening on September 16th from 4 to 7 p.m. We will have an introduction to worldview as well as a 90-minute session where you can ask anything about the day's most difficult questions in our special worldview breakout specifically for high school and college students. We encourage you to register for free online at prayvotestand.org slash summit. Again, that's prayvotestand.org slash summit. Look forward to seeing you there in Atlanta. Yesterday on the program, our guest Peter Thompson uh, drew on his 24 years working in the Department of Justice to describe the unusual circumstances around the search warrant issued for the recent FBI raid of former President Trump's residence. As anyone who saw or listened to the interview yesterday can attest, uh, we had too little time to cover the amount of information we had to cover, and so we have uh, invited him to join us, and he has graciously agreed to do so again from the road. So joining me now to continue that conversation is U.S. Assistant, former U.S. Assistant Attorney. Uh, Welcome back to the program. Do we have you? Okay, there we are. Uh, I can. Thank you. Um, Now, Yesterday, uh, the first question I want to pick up a little later, some of that foundation. You said that the uh, warrant that was used to search President Trump's house uh, was unusual in several ways. Can you remind us of what some of those were? Sure. Um, So, you know, the warrant was um, very odd and um, odd, particularly uh, based on the entire backdrop, right, the entire set of circumstances. Um, I mean, it's a warrant against, you know, a, a former um, U.S. president. Um, but what the warrant did is most warrants, and um, what, I'll, what I'll do is maybe go through what a, a standard warrant is supposed to do. So a regular a, a warrant, a search warrant, is supposed to establish probable cause um, that a crime has been committed. And um, it has to establish probable cause that a certain individual committed the crime. 
Then it has to establish probable cause that specific evidence of that crime will be found in a specific location. So in this case, we really don't have the affidavit. So we're flying a little bit blind. Um, but what this warrant does and where it really, in my opinion, really goes off the rails is that it is overly broad. It is, it is clearly a fishing expedition. Um, it, the, the, the documents, it, let me give you, give you this example. Um, so if there's a bank robbery and um, agents then get a search warrant um, to go search a house where they think the bank robber is located, they would specifically identify certain evidence of the bank robbery. Right. They would identify maybe a gun. They would identify a hold-up note, maybe marked money. Okay, and that's the evidence that they're seeking in this warrant that with regard to Mar-a-Lago, they only specified one specific set of documents, classified documents. Everything else is arguably um, way overbroad. I mean, even beyond argument. Now, let me explain. So the Mar-a-Lago warrant says to the agents that you can go seize classified documents. In addition to seizing the classified documents, you can seize all the documents in the box or or, or container where you found that classified document or document Peter? without even specifying. Yes, sir. Yeah. I, I want to get a point of clarification. How would an FBI agent recognize a classified document? So all classified documents are marked. Um, they will either be marked, you know, top secret, secret or confidential. Um, sometimes they're marked um, even beyond that if, if there are, um, you know, SCI uh, or, or special access program code words. Um, but they're clearly marked as, as being secret, top secret or confidential. And so in this warrant, this warrant allows agents to seize those documents. And that's fair. You know, I'll give them that. Um, but then the warrant allows them to seize everything in that box without even specifying what's in the box. If, if any documents in the box they've been seized, regardless of what it is. And then the warrant also gives them permission to seize every box, all documents in every box without any particularity if those boxes are in the same vicinity. Then it goes, then it gets worse. Then the warrant says you can seize all evidence of, and then it names, names a violation, all evidence of. It states you can seize all information relating to all information, whatever that is, that's not specific. Then it says you can seize any evidence of, and then it names a violation. That is beyond the pale. Um, well, and, and, and that raises the question, how do you know if it's any evidence of, if the, if the warrant does not specify the kind of evidence that we're looking for? In theory, anything could be evidence of if you don't know the totality of the case, right? You could take the couch if you wanted to, no? Exactly. And a search warrant is not supposed to leave it to the discretion of the serving of, of the agent who serves the warrant. If, if it's up to the agent's discretion, then, then that really casts doubt on the validity of the warrant. And the other thing this warrant asks for is all presidential records and goes directly to your point and all government records. So what is a presidential record? Um, that can be very, very complicated. And former U.S. presidents have a lot of discretion in actually deciding what is a presidential record. The National Archives has discretion in deciding as what a presidential record some some records created in, in departments of the White House are considered presidential records. Um, other departments are not. Um, one speech the president gives could be a presidential record. Another speech could not. So to leave that to agents to try to figure out, just combined with with all of the other 
um, deficiencies in the four corners of this warrant. I mean, effectively, it turns the fourth warrant, I mean, the Fourth Amendment on its head. It turns it on its head. And, and Peter, for those of us who are not part of this, again, in your experience, based on 24 years working in the Department of Justice, this is not how warrants are typically written? Oh, no, not at all. Absolutely not at all. Um, Look, time and time again, the uh, courts, federal courts, district courts, appellate courts, the U.S. Supreme Court, have overturned fishing expedition warrants, warrants that do not with particularity describe the evidence that's being seized. You can't draft a warrant um, for all evidence of a crime. That that flies in the face of the Fourth Amendment. And, And the way that they actually, so that's the substantive part of the warrant. But there's also a procedural part of obtaining a search warrant that I that really, really leaves me scratching my head um, of any magistrate that they could have gone to. And the Southern District of Florida has a number of federal magistrates. Um, they picked the federal magistrate that um, clearly, or at least arguably, um, was not a neutral and detached magistrate. So when you bring an affidavit of probable cause to a to a judge or a magistrate, um, you want, and actually uh, the Supreme Court has said this, that magistrate judge must be neutral and detached. Basically, he can't have a dog in the hunt. And, and one of the reasons why you believe he's not neutral because he, in fact, recused himself in previous cases because he said he could not be he could not be neutral uh, based on public statements he's made critical of the president. Is that correct? I mean, that's correct. I mean, here you have a judge. Here you have Justice Department attorneys and agents choosing to go or allowing to go to to, to present probably the most um, what's going to be the most um, controversial and scrutinized search warrant possibly in American history that that is sending shockwaves across the globe. And what magistrate do you pick or allow this to go before someone who who has recused himself already in, in, a, in, a pre, in a president's lawsuit only a month or two before, because apparently he said, I mean, this is what I understand, said that he couldn't be, you know, fair and impartial, and, and who was posted online um, impugning the integrity, the morality of the individual that you want to, you know, whose home you want to serve a warrant on. Yeah. I mean, this flies in the face of... of of, of common sense and, and, Peter, and, and clearly legality and constitutionality. We're, of course, not talking about dumb people in the Department of Justice. And, and if we have a magistrate who, based on his own, essentially, admissions, uh, was prejudiced against the party involved here, and in addition to that, uh, this was a warrant that you describe as a fishing expedition, uh, broader than you would be used to seeing, it almost seems that this search warrant was set up, it's designed to fail, it seems, because eventually, if criminal charges resulted from it, the first thing they would do is is challenge the admissibility of all evidence gained during the search and, and based on what we know, it seems that there's a, a, a pretty decent chance that all of this evidence would be uh, ruled inadmissible. Well, again, you know, we don't have the affidavit. So, you know, we, and the affidavit presents all of the facts and circumstances that, that prove at least established probable cause that someone committed a crime. We don't know who they're alleging committed a crime. We don't know if they're alleging uh, for, for former President Trump or some other some other party committing a crime. Um, so we don't have that. But what we do have is we have the four corners of the search warrant. And the 
four corners of the search warrant to me are clearly um, inarguably, um, it's a fishing expedition. Peter, I want, I want to move on to the next topic. You've mentioned this affidavit, and, and we have some sense. An affidavit in general is a sworn statement of something. Uh, but what purpose does an affidavit serve for a search warrant? And, and what information would we want to see if we could see what that would be helpful if we could see that affidavit? Well, it's a loaded question. Um, of course, the affidavit, there, have, there must be an affidavit, you know, under the Fourth Amendment. You, you know, a, a warrant shall issue only upon a showing of probable cause, right, that a crime has been committed and that certain evidence of that crime is, is in the place to be searched. So the affidavit does have to present, it is required. Who would that um, be there's from? There's a search warrant. Well, typically it's from the federal agent. A federal agent will sign the affidavit. I think under the rule, um, a federal prosecutor can do it, but the practice and procedure, it's, it's usually always a federal agent, but always reviewed by, by Department of Justice personnel. And at this, a warrant of this significance, an application of this significance with the affidavit, I can assure you would have been reviewed by the Assistant Attorney General or whatever department is in charge, whether it's the Criminal Division or the National Security Division or another division, up to the Deputy Attorney General, the Office of Legal Counsel of the Department of Justice, and counsel to the Attorney General and probably the Attorney General himself. Now, also in our remaining moments here, I want to talk about the uh, involvement or lack thereof of the White House. Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House spokeswoman, had this to say about the White House's awareness of the criminal investigation. Let's play clip three. The president has been very clear uh, and unequivocal about this is that when it comes to law enforcement matters, investigation, the Department of Justice has complete, complete independence. And he has said that during his campaign. He has said that as, pres as president, we do not interfere. We do not get briefed. We do not get involved. Uh, in your experience, would it be uh, typical for the White House to be completely unaware of a criminal investigation of this kind in the Department of Justice? Well, typically, um, the White House would be unaware of the vast majority of criminal investigations. But an investigation of whoever, whoever this, whoever is being investigated, we actually don't know because we don't have the affidavit. But to serve a search warrant on the outgoing president of the United States and, and knowing the controversy this is going to cause, I cannot imagine um, that the White House would not have been informed. Um, there, a White House, there's a White House liaison in the Attorney General's office. Uh, the Office of Legal Counsel would have certainly reviewed um, th this warrant, uh, and the Office of Legal Counsel works very closely with White House Counsel um, to advise not only the Attorney General and other components of, of the federal government, but also to um, provide legal advice to the White House. So I cannot envision uh, any, any possibility uh, that someone in the Department of Justice did not advise the White House um, that this warrant was going to be executed on uh, President Trump's re uh, residence in Florida. Well, we have been surprised at uh, how they've dealt with other situations, so you, de you never know. Now, we're talking to Peter Thompson, 24-year veteran of the Department of Justice. You talked about the issue of these classified documents. Now, presidents have the ability to classify information. They also have the ability to declassify information. Would it have been possible for President Trump just to say that the information that he he took is no longer classified information, and therefore he has a right to take that? Yes, yeah, so exactly as to what the process is, I think that's changed over the years. I think um, 
remember, I think President Obama issued an executive order. Um, I think that uh, relates to this, but generally, the, my understanding is that the president does have the right to classify. He is the chief executive. He is the commander in chief. And his legal authority flows from the Constitution. It doesn't flow, in my opinion, from statutory law or from Congress. Yeah. His authority over national security information and classified information flows directly from the Constitution. And the fact the U.S. Supreme Court case, um, I believe it was you, uh, Department of Navy um, versus Egan, um, and the Supreme Court actually noted um, th that presidents do have the inherent constitutional authority to classify and declassify documents, and that yeah. that authority does flow from the Constitution. So, yes, he could have declassified these documents, any documents um, that he um, maintained. Then does it follow that President Biden could reclassify that information and say that he needs to have that back? Well, I, I think that's possible. I think other people um, in the government might might all you know every other other components have the ability to classify um although you know it, it's i'm unsure because we don't have the warrant as to whether this whole warrant concern classified information or something else it it seems to concern classified information because they cite the the you know the espionage act um which is a, a remarkable act to cite um in this warrant well, Peter Thompson, we are out of time, but we thank you for taking more time because this has helped us understand this. Uh, we were all once uh, uh, expert virologists, and now we've become expert attorneys and experts in classified information online. But uh, we really do appreciate the education you brought us in your time today. Thanks for being with us. No, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, friends, for being with us. We'll see you tomorrow on Washington Watch. Until then, fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.